Read, read three lines ahead, doofus. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by tablet editor-at-large, Leah Leibowitz. A happy post-Shabbat Nachamu to you. Absolutely. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Ditto. This week, we spoke with Rachel Shukert, the head writer for the incredibly popular Netflix revival of The Babysitter's Club. And we bring you a conversation with activist and author of The New Queer Conscience, Adam Eli. But before we get to those A-plus guests, we've passed through Tisha B'Av. Leal, I presume you fasted for all of us. Not only did I fast, but this year I read all the keynotes, the repentant poems that you're supposed to read. So first of all, these things are absolutely terrifying. About 70% Mm -hmm. of them are about cannibalism and mothers eating their babies, which nothing really prepares you for that when you're sitting with like a nice leather bound volume. Mm -hmm. Uh, And second of all, I sort of put aside like 30 minutes thinking, well, you know, how many of them could there be? It took like two and a half hours. There are a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's no joke. And what do wife and children do while you're deep in obscurantist religious ritual on a holiday such as Tisha B'Av? Wife works, children watch Phineas and Ferb. So do, so do you like- That other great text for Tisha B'Av. Do you go into the closet of religiosity and try to drown them out somehow? Or are you just there in the living room pretending that Phineas and Ferb are not on the computer? Well, part of the weirdness is that you actually have to sort of <laughs> sit on the floor in the dark, at least right. the night of- and so there was a moment, definitely, where the kids walked by, be like, "Why should we turn on the light? <laughs> should we pull up a chair? Why?" What are you happened here? to Daddy? Right. <laughs> so, as the one clean-shaven male among a team, because Robert Scaramucci is a uh, has has a nicely, a tightly trimmed beard, but a full beard nonetheless. Josh has a beard with uh, some some skunk stripes of white in it. That's and new. You have definitely just a new development. A mammoth. I mean, Liel, your your beard is truly. Of, Can you um, show us? It's it's sort of of Tevya-like proportions. You're ready. Oh, damn. Wow. Wow. That's so bushy. We need to talk. Uh, the, the last couple of weeks have presented, shall we say, some strife and tension in the Leibovitz household <laughs> with Mrs. Leibovitz, Lisa, sort of saying some uncomplimentary things about the beard, like, that it looks like I have a giant mesh of pubes on my face and or a dream catcher for COVID and insisting that I shave immediately. Now, do you ever get instances in which your darling wife comes to you and says, you may not wear this, do that, et cetera, when it comes to your own personal aesthetic? You know, it's very interesting. My wife and I have somewhat different taste in clothes. And it's, we reached a detente early in the marriage where if I'm wearing something like, say, a sort of burnt orange or magnolia colored corduroy short by Birdwell, <laughs> uh, every time I see myself going for a retro vibe, she just thinks I've gone insane. She just thinks I'm a moron. She doesn't see the kind of nuances of of my of my wardrobe choices. She just thinks I look ridiculous. So she just rolls her eyes and says, you do what you feel. But let me be frank. She actually puts less acclaim on my appearance than I would like her to. Like, I actually think there's something <laughs> romantic. I think there's something romantic. You want to know she cares. Right. Yeah. I think there's something romantic about couples really dressing for each other. And, you know, I have a very loving and romantic marriage in many ways, but we don't tend to dress for each other. Her attitude, I think, is much more, you should wear what makes you feel great. And I'm, I wouldn't deign to tell you not to. I'm not going to lie if I think it looks ridiculous, but I'm not going to tell you to change. And similarly, she wouldn't take it from me. Like, she doesn't say you know, is this skirt nice on me? Oh no. Okay. I'll go change, which some couples do for each other. And I find it very romantic. And that's not 
part of our relationship. In terms of facial hair, the kids just, they literally cry if I have three or four days of stubble. Like the moment where they think that I'm growing a beard, they get very panicky in the way that children, you know, they don't like change. The way if you change the furniture, kids can sometimes like sob because change is very unsettling for them. Daddy's facial hair is a harbinger of bad change. (laughs) So it's really feels cruel to grow. Like the one time I came down with a mustache, one of my kids started sobbing and Sid said I looked like Hitler and it was over. It was a disturbing day for all of us. Yeah, no, yeah. nobody liked it. So I get really no leeway. Like I don't get to make a lot of these choices. And I'm I'm curious, Liel, maybe Josh, you could weigh in too. I mean, Liel, you're, you're constantly pushing up against the edge. Your wife doesn't like it and you kind of don't care. Well, it's not that I don't care. It's that the differences between us are so vast because Lisa is a... An elegant, tasteful woman, and she I, is. I can confirm. You're a Kodiak yes, bear who and, hasn't and, eaten yeah, for and, a month. And I exactly, and I'm sort of barely human. I mean, my favorite outfitter is the Tractor Supply Company. I mean, what do I know? Look at me. So the chasm here is very vast. It literally is like getting an animal from the forest and saying, "Well, now you must wear pants." And the animal will ask, "Well, why? I never did before." We're not talking like style. We're talking essentials when it comes to me. Stephanie, what, what is it like in the Butnik Cohen household? Look, it's, it's weird. We basically spent every day together for the past five months. <laughs> Usually this time of year, Ben travels a lot, right? He would be gone for the NBA playoffs, which should have been months ago, which are now happening right now. He would actually right now be in Tokyo for the Olympics. So there's actually a lot of time that we don't usually spend together during these these parts of the year, you know. Welcome to the marriages the rest of us have. <laughs> <laughs> no more week-long absence makes the heart grow fonder rechargings. Yeah, I keep getting things being like, Ben comes back from the Olympics. And I was like, oh, Ben, you were supposed to come back from the Olympics tomorrow. <laughs> I really missed you. And we're in a very s- relatively small space. You know, we're in a one-bedroom apartment. The one fun development of the pandemic has been that I do his buzz cuts now. I call it cats and cuts, my business. I'm on Venmo. I'm pretty good at it, but it's fun. I do a two on the sides and a three on top. So I'm actually in full control over what happens to, to Ben's hair. Which is what I have every day. So before we conclude this fascinating conversation, let's let's take a quick vote. Uh, members of the team, should this beard, which by the way is only three months old, it looks like I've had it for 17 years. Should I keep it? Should I shave it? So here's my thing. I don't see you and I don't interact with you in person. So I don't feel like I should really get a vote. That said, I appreciate having a vote and will vote with it. I think you look very Talmudic, very rabbinic. You've been doing this Take One Dafyomi podcast. It sort of suits the new you, which is sort of like fanatic, religious, you know, human. Huh. So I kind oh, of. The, the new me. Yeah, the new you. <laughs> yes. I'm just. I like it, but I also understand that, like, shalom by it. You know, we want peace in the house. Yeah. I mean, you're asking us, you know, do I keep my marriage or my beard? And I'm rooting for you to keep both. Dear Abby. If, if I had to choose, I want you to keep your marriage. But if if spousal approval weren't in the equation, I would say I'm really into the uh, Hilltop Settler meets music producer Rick Rubin fullness of your beard. Five thumbs up. C- can I weigh in on behalf of the production staff? Yeah, but you're also you also shave your head, which raises a whole other order of questions. Oh, uh, totally. But let, let me just say as somebody who has shaved his face once for my wife in 20 years and she said put that back on right away because that looks terrible without it <laughs> there's a happy medium liel you can trim this and shape it and look freaking you could awesome it, liel. talmudic without you could wax it into a devil-like point josh there's a place in the middle the words happy medium make no sense to me never have never will 
But however, the way you get really into like coffee and you have this like very fancy pour over situation, you could get really into the grooming and like all the accoutrement that that comes with. Mm. <laughs> you know, those like brushes for shaving cream. Like you could get the, into it. The, I feel the like. little o- beard oils. Yeah. Beard wax. Robert, as someone who's been bearded since before you were a freshman in college. When you met Mar- Professor Oppenheimer. That's right. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, you've been bearded from a younger Robert, age. Robert, you, you were seven when you got this yeah. beard. Actually, when I was in Catholic high school, we weren't allowed to grow any facial hair at all. It was like the New York Yankees. Yes, exactly. Except in a small town in Massachusetts. And like the argument that like, oh, Jesus probably had facial hair did not make any sense to anybody, apparently. But yeah, no, I actually grew my beard over the course of being in your class, Mark. So I don't know if you remember that, but that was really, I feel like by the end of the semester, I got like one compliment from you and I was like, I've done it. Yeah. And wait, has, it. have you had the beard ever since? Yes. Wow. 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 I hope you had an A in that class, Robert. <laughs> it's funny because at the time, Robert, you couldn't have known that you were living out his fantasy of having a beard, which That's he wasn't right. allowed to do by his family. I do want to say that it's funny that your Catholic high school did not allow beards because, you know, we've had people say like, how come Harry's is a sponsor for your podcast? Jewish men aren't supposed to shave. Like there's a lot of like male Jewish hair stuff that like we could go so deep into. It's the beard that got Robert to us. What religion likes beards? I'm going to go with them. It was us us or the Amish and you know, we won. Wait, Sarah Fredman Ader, as an alumna of, you went to Jewish high school, right? And and your children presumably will. Were boys allowed, were they encouraged? I mean, of course, at a very Jewish high school, at like a Haredi high school, don't ever shave, right? You get, you you know, you start at 12 or 13 with a few wisps. And by the time you're out of high school, you've got the full Liel Leibowitz. What was it like at your high school? What was the beard situation? Well, I went to an all-girls school. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'll ask again. What was the beard situation? Uh, It was mostly peroxide. Yeah, I I feel you, girl. In your modern Orthodox social scene, were boys rocking beards in high school? I think that they were trying and rocking that really scraggly, pimply look that looks so good on every 17-year-old boy. Uh, There was no rule against it. I'll just conclude by saying that Robert talking about the Catholic school, them trying to argue that, well, Jesus had a beard. Of course, in Footloose, right? That's that's how Kevin Bacon finally got them permission to dance. (laughs) He's like, he found biblical passages of them dancing and said, who's your daddy now? And that I but it didn't work with Father Kevin. Uh, News of the Jews, Stephanie, you have an update on a story we've already covered. Well, I do because I want to say, Liel, you said that you like really, really went all in on Tisha B'Av this year. So did Nick Cannon. He, uh, <laughs> listeners will remember that he was embroiled over some sort of just like bizarro tweets. He spent Tisha B'Av fasting and reading friend of the show, Barry Weiss's book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. <laughs> I want to share with you the caption of his Instagram post. I rise after a full day of fasting, meditation, study and prayer honoring for the first time Tisha B'Av. I've recently learned that this Jewish day of mourning religiously recognizes the fall of both of Solomon's temples, the first to the late Babylonian Empire and 700 years later, the second by the Roman Empire on the same day. 700 years later, the other temple that Solomon built because Solomon lived for about a thousand years, so clearly <laughs> okay, built Okay, whatever, both. whatever. We like this still. He knows more than 98% of Jews That's right, right. The day is often known as the saddest in Judaism because many other travesties occurred on the ninth day of Av in the Hebrew calendar. Through fasting on this day, the goal is to rid sinachinam, or baseless hatred, which is why I was put on my heart to deliver the book report on how to fight anti-Semitism by Barry Weiss. So you can read his book report. Like, he is doing that work, man. He was like- wow. 
<laughs> next season of The Masked Singer will never be the same. It's like, I think it's uh, Abe Foxman in the chicken costume. Now, wait, he is a singer, right? Nick Cannon, among other things. He's he everything. Has, he's a singer, he's so, like rapper, dancer, everything. So next year, he's going to be chanting lamentations. I mean, he's he's 12 months away from sitting on the floor with little tea candles lit. They're going to give him like, he's going to learn the Echa trope, and he's going to be third or fourth in line to chant lamentations at a conservative temple. I'm thinking Great Neck. I'm thinking Needham, Massachusetts. I'm thinking Aventura Turnberry down in Florida. There is a, a conservative shul somewhere that's going to put him into the Lamentations chanting rotation for next year. I'm not impressed. I mean, Tisha B'Av is nice and everything, but if it's not some Gedalia, right. you're, not, you're not in the club. <laughs> like, this is way above and beyond. We're like, what? This is amazing. I mean, clearly, I don't I don't know what is going on with him. Like, he he clearly is taking this seriously. I mean, I do. this does not look like, you don't fast for Tisha B'Av, like, <laughs> just for the good PR. Like, that is a lot to take on. To be fair, Stephanie, that's the only reason I think Nick Kedda would fast for Tisha. I mean, I'm not saying there's not some sincerity going on here, but if he and if he got, you know, Rubenstein, Goldfarb and and Halperin PR agents <laughs> and said, how do I get in with the Jews? And he's like, well, Sukkot's a ways off. First of all, they found the next holiday and it was Tisha B'Av. And they're like, you know, oh, my God. You could fast. I mean, Mark, you assume that uh, high-paid crisis communication PR would absolutely go to like religious ritual first and foremost. <laughs> Be like, well, you know, the first thing you do, you sit on the floor, you read lamentations. It's great. I think that we should not be so hard on Nick Cannon. This is amazing. Like, this is more than most Jews did this week. I agree. Right? I think I think that's fantastic and, and really wonderful form of teshuva. And shalom to you, Nick Cannon. The only thing better would be coming on Unorthodox to discuss your, your teshuva this year. We'll see you at Yom Kippur Breakfast. That's right. I have to disagree, though, Stephanie, when you say nobody else did as much this week to atone. I think Ice Cube who had some anti-Semitic tweets of his own, suffered even more. His <laughs> afflictions were greater than a mere fast. Somehow it was suggested that he sit down with Zionist Organization of America President Mort Klein to talk about Jewish suffering. So even in a community, I'll just put it this way, even in a community of people known for having strong personalities and being opinionated, Mort Klein has a strong personality and is opinionated. The idea of having to sit down and talk to Mort Klein for an hour or two about Jewish suffering, I'd sooner do a week-long Tisha but I would fast for all of Av before I would sit down with Mort Klein. <laughs> <laughs> who is it who said to Ice Cube, I know who we have to go send you to cure you of anti-Semitism. Go talk to the pushiest Jew in North America, Mort Klein. And second it, it, of all- It was his physician, Dr. Dre. And get on his mailing list, because that guy sends out press releases pretty much every day. <laughs> and third of all, why is no one sending them to Unorthodox? I mean, we're a zippy 20 minutes. We don't put you on a mailing list. This is absolutely the, 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 the take-home point. Guys, those apology tours, they're very outdated. From now on, if you do or say anything bad about Jews, just come to us. Our, our absolutions are much cheaper than the current market rate. No <laughs> fasting, no email lists, just 20 minutes of Holocaust jokes and you'll be done. No, I know that you guys are joking, but there is something a little distressing that we are sending like 7,000 year old dudes who like represent a very, very, very specific yes. form of Judaism within American Judaism. And like, they're the ones who have the power. And I think that speaks to just sort of the problem with American Judaism today is that we've like elected these like four guys. It's like That's right. Abe Foxman, Marvin Heyer, Mort Klein and like the other one. And that's who they sent out. And, and you're like, 
actually, that's not reflective of what most of the American Jewish community looks that's like right. today and acts like and feels like. And so I actually do agree that, like, we're one of them to come on this show. We actually could have a really interesting conversation with them about, like, why did you say this? Like, we're not going to yell at you. We just want to know because obviously if you feel this, other people feel this. Like, we, we sort of want to get to the bottom of it. And I, I don't want to be sending people, like, the worst representations. <laughs> You know what we need? We need a, a repentance czar, a teshuva czar, someone who uh, the community empowers to go out and be our representative to grant or refuse forgiveness. Maybe like Tiffany Haddish. Is it a sit down Tiffany Haddish? I mean, I was just thinking you'd learn more from season one of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Really learn more about the rituals that Jews actually are likely to practice, about the kind of conversations they have, about the, the black humor that we have within the community than you would from sitting down with Mort Klein. How about this? Do you remember way back we interviewed the modern ritual rabbis, Sam Frank and Rena Singer? Mm-hmm. And they are two great young female rabbis who are all about just like modern expressions of Judaism. And that's what live Judaism looks like today. It doesn't look like someone's grandpa. I mean, it's I just worry that we're showing people these like, and now you must apologize for what you said because of the Holocaust. And we're like, that's not really the reason. It doesn't look only like people's grandpa. People's grandpas are important parts of it. The, the, the old are important parts of it as well. But I agree with you that the young and the non-Orthodox and the non-professional nonprofit, it's its all of it, right? And yeah, Lilia, would you add anything to that? Uh, mandatory birthright trips? <laughs> Ice Cube, you must now go on Bedouin tent night. With a bunch of 18-year-olds, like Michigan students. If you do not make out with an Israeli soldier, you have not <laughs> repented for your sins. Or, or just buy a mitzvah tank. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you stand in the street corner being like, excuse me, are you Jewish? Oh God, Can you imagine Ice Cube in the street corner like, hey, man, you. So in the list of people who have said things that make Jews mad lately, Seth Rogen tops this list now because he is promoting his new movie, An American Pickle. And he went on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, said a bunch of stuff that made people very, very mad, a little bit critical of Israel. And just so that our listeners know we are on this story, we actually already had an ask in to Seth Rogen before all this to get him on the show because we really want to talk to him about that movie. So we're not going to really like do that discussion right now because things are in the works. So basically just know we hear this story, we listen to the episode, we want to talk to him, we, you know, skip Marvin Heyer, come straight to us. Uh, We will talk about all of this. Um, And while we wait for Seth Rogen, I will share a piece of news that came out of Israel today, which I actually... I pray is true, but sounds too good to be true. This may be debunked, but apparently Itzhak Bushi Herzog, the former head of the Israeli Labor Party and the head of the Jewish agency worldwide, called Seth Rogan's mother to get Seth to call him and have a very serious conversation about Israel, which is really the most Jewish thing ever. He actually sent a letter, but it doesn't really matter. So Seth, it's like they, he tried to get out, but Bougie Herzog pulled him right back in. His baby. Uh, Seth, listen, why you say the thing about the state of the Jews in the movie, in the podcast with the You Meryl? go on Mark Merritt and say the thing about the podcast and a cabinet member in Israel will call your mother. It's pronounced Mark Maron. I will say the conversation was like a laughing light conversation between two comedians and they kept saying like, wow, the Jews are going to get really mad about this. And like, true to form, those Jews are the like, the Jews are getting really mad about Seth it. Rogan, he shouldn't have said bad things about Israel. About like, Israel. Because you this, know who really cares about what Seth Rogan thinks about Israel? Ice Cube. I- Israel. Israel's like, oh no, oh, now no. we will have no more security because the the person from the 40-year-old virgin What uh, that is Christopher Mintzplatz saying now? <laughs> Not McLovin. Is McLovin also like, anti-Semitic? Paul Rudd was a bar mitzvah DJ. <laughs> Catherine Heigl, has she converted yet? Yes. 
One of the ways I have been surviving quarantine, indeed finding joy and solace and happiness in quarantine, is by watching the Netflix reboot of the classic series that my daughters adore, The Babysitter's Club. The show is exactly what the doctor ordered right now, and we were very excited that longtime tablet contributor and contributor to the newest Jewish encyclopedia, Rachel Schukert, happens to be the head writer of the show. And she made time to sit down with us and talk Babysitter's Club. Here's our conversation with Rachel Schukert. here with Rachel Schukert. She's a writer and producer, and she's contributed to Tablet for many, many years, and she wrote several entries for our book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia. She's now out in Hollywood. She worked on the TV show Glow, and she's the showrunner of the new Netflix reboot of the beloved 90s series, The Babysitter's Club. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's so exciting, first of all, to have known you when you were, you know, writing TV recaps for Vulture, living in New York, <laughs> writing for Tablet, and you've written books, and now you're sort of out in, in Hollywood, and you've, like, now you're a showrunner. It's really amazing. For all the people outside the industry, showrunner means you're, you're the boss writer, right? Like, you are the head writer. You're the head writer. You're also sort of the head of production. Everyone reports to you, and you report to the studio. It sounds like a lot of pressure. Having been a writer on a show but not the showrunner, do you like being the showrunner? It is a lot of pressure. It's a very <laughs> stressful job, actually. I do really like it, actually. I like to be in charge. I, I find it invigorating and I think I'm pretty good at it. And it's fun to be the one who sort of makes the decisions about things. It's nice to have worked on a lot of other shows because you see a lot of different leadership styles and you see things that people do that are really great. And you're like, oh, if I'm ever in charge, that's the way that I want to be. And then you see people do things that are sort of not so useful and you kind of learn what to avoid. So I, I feel lucky that I got to work as a writer and a writing producer in a lot of capacities on a lot of seasons of television before I ever moved into being a showrunner. I feel like some writers are sort of not as lucky because it is kind of insane that they just take a writer who has no management training and and no proven leadership skills and then sort of put them in charge of this like mini corporation that's worth millions and millions of dollars under this in this like insanely pressurized environment and you sometimes sometimes it's an experiment that doesn't always go so well. <laughs> so I feel lucky that I had enough experience under my belt to sort of know what pitfalls to avoid. And there's just a lot of problem solving and a lot of putting out fires, which is something I enjoy. So I think when everyone hears The Babysitter's Club, they remember like where they were when they read the first book, or there's this indelible print it has, I think, for a lot of, particularly, I'd say, women who grew up at a certain point in America. What is your like origin story with The Babysitter's Club? I got one of the books for my birthday you know how you would have like a birthday party with everyone from your class and everyone would bring you some little present. And I got a copy of The Ghost at Dawn's House, number nine in the series. And this was probably like second or third grade. So the books have been out for like a few years, but I wasn't really aware of them. I hadn't really heard of them until I got this book. And I, I remember looking at the cover and not being super interested in it. There's like the blurb description at the back. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who any of these people are. I'd never heard of these. And then one day I was just home and I liked to read and I would read kind of anything I got my hands on. So I just decided to give it a try. And I was immediately hooked by the characters in the world of Stony Brook. And then somehow, for some reason, everybody in my class was suddenly all reading them at the same time, even though I don't remember anybody having talked about them before. It like hit this sort of critical mass. And so for about a period of really about two or three years, I was really, really super obsessed with them. I, I read all of them. I read probably like the first 50 or 60 of them, the super specials. And my friends at school and I would like trade them and talk about the ones we hadn't read yet. And we would sort of all try our own babysitters club sort of experiments and, you know, kind of obsessively talk about them in the playground. And sometimes pretend to be the characters on the playground having like a babysitter's club meeting. <laughs> so they were just this really like seminal part of my childhood. And then I kind of, you know, got older and kind of outgrew them a little bit. 
but I had this, just this unbelievable memory bank of them. So when they first approached me about this project, I was really like immediately kind of postpartum. I think my son was like two or three months old and I was just in this like blackout, you know, I was already back at work, but they called me and Lucy Katata, who's one of the executive producers on the project and really has kind of shepherded this through. She was like, did you ever read the babysitter's club growing up? And I was like, oh my God, yes. And what was insane is I was, you know, I hadn't slept in like three months, four months. And I barely remembered my own name. I would like drive with the car door open and then realize like four blocks down that like the door was open, like that kind of state of tiredness. But I just remembered all of these like arcane details of the babysitter's club. Like all of their handwritings, where they lived, clothes that they wore, like specific outfits, specific sentences, the names of all the kids they babysat for, and like what allergies they had. It was really bizarre. I was like, this is what's programmed in my lizard brain. It just felt like a sort of perfect fit. And I think having just become a parent too, it was sort of exciting to think about it in a different context in terms of childcare and what you're looking for and what is useful. You're looking for 12-year-olds, right? <laughs> Obviously, you know as a mom, what you're looking for is, is a bunch of 11, 12-year-olds who of. decide they need to make a buck. I would absolutely let any of the girls on this show watch my kids. See, I would too, but you and I are the, yes. you're the West Coast person who will, and I'm the East Coast person. You, it's me and you in this country who think the 12-year-olds are competent enough. We should say that Mark has five kids. <laughs> For some context. Well, you, if you lose one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, you need an heir and a spare. But I have a 13-year-old who we do let babysit the other kids, but it is interesting. I mean, you did something very interesting with the chronology, which I love, which is in the first episode, you basically insert all these completely plausible plot devices for why they're going to live a, you know, 1980s <laughs> lifestyle with a landline and, you know, with handwriting and stuff like that. And they're sort of anti-social media. I mean, I completely love it. Did you feel like you had to update it, that it couldn't be set in whatever that vague 80s, 90s-ish world of the original series was? I mean, I kind of did because I felt like it would just be more specific if I could really place it in a period of time because the book series was written from 1986 to 2000. So it's not even really in one specific time period. And I think it's one thing to do that kind of in a book, but it's another thing to do it in television where they need to have like current cars and current clothes and, and setting something in the present, I think is just so much more accessible for a young audience too. Not to mention much, much, much easier production wise. <laughs> <laughs> But it felt relevant and it felt like we could kind of get into like a different kind of inclusivity and we could tell some more progressive stories and, you know, really rooted in the present day. That actually felt like the right creative choice. But I did feel like I didn't want it to be this sort of like, it's all social media, it's all virtual, all they do is text. You know, I wanted to kind of find the balance where it could feel plausible and very IRL, as the kids don't say, but you know what I mean, that there was like an analog <laughs> aspect to it because that that feels... I mean, that whole kind of montage in the pilot with Alicia Silverstone sort of trying to go through all these different ways that we now can try to find childcare that just seemed to make it harder, you know, all these like apps and websites and like membership services. And, you know, you text six people and then none of them get back to you. Then they all get back to you at the same time. And it's like, if you could just make one phone call, I don't think that that idea is really broken, <laughs> you know, like no one picks up their phone. No, one, like, no, it was right in my sweet spot. I always say, if you want circulation for your publication, like stand on a street corner and hand it out. That, that literally is the best way to get people to read anything you have. Some of these things were really not, there was no need to update them. <laughs> And, you know, and you want to see the girls together. You want them to have that interaction. And I kind of felt like without the club meetings, if you just were like, well, it doesn't make sense because they all have cell phones, then you kind of don't have a show. Right. Because it's all about, <laughs> it's all about their interactions. And those, those meetings are really the heart of the show. It's sort of like, I feel like they sort of function the way the like brunches do in Sex in the City, where they're all, you know that you're going to see them all together 
for at least one or two scenes an episode and hear what's going on with all of them, clock their emotional states, see their relationship with each other. And like, that's the kind of friend moment that we all want to be a part of. So it felt like that really made it clear to me. And I also just felt too that like, I wanted to present a sort of maybe slightly not 100% realistic, but sort of aspirational version of being a kid this age where like, yeah, you can live on your phone and you have your phone and you text and there's social media and there's all that stuff. But that doesn't have to be the only thing about your life. Like, see your friends in real life, go do real things, you know, look at people in the face. And I didn't want it to be this like harrowing, sort of scrolling, looking for likes sort of thing that I think we've seen before. And I also have to say, like, having worked with these girls who are all really that age, that's kind of how they live. Like they all have their phones and they're on their phones, but I don't think they're quite as obsessed with them as like kids, maybe like five or 10 years ago. Cause they're just, they've always been there. They're just kind of in the background of their lives. Well, it's funny. I was talking to a friend's daughter and she said, Oh, I'm so excited for camp. I don't need to like check my phone all summer. And so I was like, yeah. Oh, I remember sneaking my big Nokia phone into camp, which wasn't allowed because it was like <laughs> this crazy thing to have. So I could like text my one friend who also had a phone in camp. But this idea, I do think you see it in the show where young people actually want these escapes from technology. Like they, them gathering in that room means that they don't have to be on their phone. Like, I mean, I'm watching it as someone who read the books, who is not obviously any of the ages of those girls. But I think if you were a girl that age watching, you probably are like, oh, I can hang out with my friends in person and have those real connections. I imagine that's sort of quite, quite important for them. Yeah, totally. I think it's fun to see. Part of what was always attractive about those books to the kids that were reading them is how independent they are. You know, they really have their own lives. Mm -hmm. They're allowed to kind of move freely through their neighborhood. They can go over to their friend's house whenever they want to. They get to babysit. They're trusted. They have autonomy. And I don't know how realistic that ever was, <laughs> you know, even in the 80s when I was a kid and I was reading these books from the 90s when I was a kid reading these books. But it's there and it made it appealing. And I felt like there was an element of that to this sort of in real life kind of interactions that they have for, the, for kids now. So in having read these books aloud hundreds of times <laughs> to my kids who who love them, and they also love the graphic novels, several of which are Raina Teljemeyer graphic novels. Oh, yeah, and- those are so great. I had never picked up on the the coded Jewishness of Stacey McGill until uh, <laughs> until I discovered, basically, you sort of put it all together, that here she's from the Upper West Side. She's really good at business. She loves Bloomingdale's. Yeah, you, like you basically <laughs> made her the Jew in a show, that in a, in, a, in a plot world that I have to say, having read these books to the little Jewesses and Jew who are my children, I've discovered it's like totally Judenrein. Like it is the waspiest <laughs> setup ever, which may be why young Jewish girls like it. I mean, it's there's a kind of aspirational mid-century Jew-free Americana that is the reason I wear polo. Well, there's Abby Stevenson, who comes in later in the series, who's a Jewish babysitter. Really? Yes. She was kind of past my time. I don't know if she's going to make it into the series because she doesn't come in until like book 70 or something. She's like post-canon. Yeah, she's but she comes in and she's like a full babysitter. She's in the club and she's Jewish. She has a bat mitzvah. They go to her bat mitzvah. She has a twin sister. She has a dead dad and she's really good at tennis. That's what I know about Abby. <laughs> but I do remember being a kid and like kind of looking for any clues. Like I remember Jamie Newton's mother's sister is named Mrs. Feldman and the cousins are the Feldman cousins. And I was like, oh, they're Jewish. <laughs> so the funny thing about this show coming out is it's about the sort of like halcyon childhood, thing, like this utopia of Stony Brook. Not actually, but you know, this place where these young girls are babysitting, they're independent. It also came to the world at this, like, very uncertain time, and I found myself watching it just like it was a balm. It was this, like, soothing, 
I don't know. I felt like it was a gift to America right now to give them in the midst, midst of this pandemic, in the midst of a really dark summer. How does that affect, you know, you didn't make the show this spring, obviously. No, but I I think things were already sort of bad. <laughs> you know, like when we were conceiving the show, we really did talk a lot about how we wanted it to feel very warm. We wanted it to feel sort of like comforting and inspirational without being sort of saccharine, you know, like how can we take things that are going on and sort of put them through this lens of comfort and nostalgia and still have them feel grounded and real and emotionally effective. And then everything just kind of got more and more intensely horrible. (laughs) So that wasn't something that we planned. I didn't think people would just be like trapped at home with their children desperately looking for something to watch as a family, although I don't think it's hurt the show's performance. So I want to talk to you about Camp Moosehead. End of the show, like sort of like crescendos with the camp subplot. Can you tell us about that? I mean, to me, that's when I was sort of like, it's a little bit parent trap. Anything that shows camp, I just I just really, really love. Of course, the camp I know is sort of like a camp where everyone is Jewish. So I kept being right. like, maybe, maybe her, <laughs> which is <laughs> how I watch things. And it's a problem. Camp is such a just quintessentially Jewish American experience, whether it's Jewish camp or not. Like, I feel like it's kind of the babysitter's club writ large because I feel like part of why kids like camp is because you get to be independent camp. It's almost, it's like as close to like living on your own as you get to be when you're like 11, you know, like you're kind of responsible for yourself. Like no one's micromanaging you. And like the kind of camps I went to, there was definitely like a, sometimes a feeling of sort of benign neglect. Like you could just find yourself wandering around by yourself in the woods. That never happened. Like at home, there was a feeling of independence that you don't get somewhere else. There's a super special, the Babysitter's Club super special. It's Babysitter's Summer Vacation where they go to camp. It's called Camp Mohawk in the books. We changed that because it's a little more politically correct to not be Camp Mohawk now. And Moosehead felt like a funny name. Wait to hear from the Moose Lobby. (laughs) I haven't, not yet. I haven't. (laughs) From Big Moose. I definitely worked in some of my own memories of camp. I spent a lot of time indoors trying to get theater off the ground and do arts and crafts. I was not a very outdoorsy camper. So I feel like Dawn and Claudia and Marianne, like that's my most autobiographical camp experience. I also got poison ivy several times. So the Stacy story in there was very, felt very close to me. (laughs) When you put out the call, when word was on the street that you were looking for writers who wanted to work on a serialization of the Babysitter's Club, were you inundated with women about your age who said, oh my God, dream job? Or was it actually hard to find people who knew the books as well as you needed them to? And and if you had people who weren't as acquainted with them, did they have homework? I mean, did they have to go read the books? I kind of tried to make it a combination of both because, yes, there were so many people that were like, oh, my God, the Babysitter's Club was my life. Like, I know every detail of it. But I actually kind of wanted a combo of people who had been super fans and, like, had the knowledge and ones who would kind of come to it with fresh eyes. That's when you can kind of, like, take things apart and be, like, a little more analytical about stuff because people that read these books as adults have a totally different experience of them as people who read them for the first time when they were eight and have carried them around for like the last 30 years, you know? So it was a little bit of a combination of both. There were also a surprising number of men that had read the Babysitter's Club as boys and maybe like weren't super open about it. And now they were like, I read them all. My sister had them. I didn't want anyone to know that I read them, but I read them all. I loved them. I loved Marianne, you know, like like whatever. I mean, it's interesting because they didn't write soap operas for boys. If you weren't interested in sci-fi or fantasy, which I wasn't, and you wanted a kind of American naturalism, you know, I ended up reading a ton of Judy Bloom, and I ended up reading a lot of Sweet Valley High. Yeah. For whatever reason, the Babysitter's Club didn't cross my radar. But if, if I'd read one, I would have been completely hooked. Oh, totally. It's such a complete world, Stony Brook. Like you really feel like you know every nook and cranny of it and all of the families and you understand like all of their sort of socioeconomic statuses and like this kind of kid goes to this school and this kind of kid goes to this school. It's like she really painted a picture and 
Gal Beckerman, actually, who you guys probably know, because I know he's written for television. Yeah. I talked to him for this great essay that he wrote in the New York Times Book Review about how the Babysitter's Club really taught him how to read literary fiction, <laughs> because there were so many details in it about, like, people's homes <laughs> and, like, what, like, somebody's mother was wearing and, like, all of these, like, small sort of visual details that are indicative of character and class and all of these things. It's very, it's very slice of life, you know? So you're working with this cast. I mean, had, was this their first encounter with the Babysitter's Club? Are girls today still reading them? A lot of them had read them. Sophie Grace, who plays Christy, who's so fabulous, she had read all of them because she had an older sister She's like the youngest of, I think she's like six or something. So she has like some siblings that are like significantly older than she is. And her older sister, she talks about how she like idolized her growing up, but they didn't have a lot in common because the age difference was so big. But then her sister like gave her some of her old Babysitter's Club books and Sophie started reading them. And then it was like a thing they could talk about. So when Sophie was like seven, she and her like 17 year old sister would talk about the Babysitter's Club together. And then Malia, who plays Marianne. Who's great. Who's great. Her mother is terrifyingly like, you know, we're like the same age, I think, <laughs> because, you know, she's a 13-year-old girl. Her mother had loved the Babysitter's Club growing up and kind of passed her collection of books on to her daughters, including Malia. And Malia loved them and read them. And I remember when she first auditioned, her first audition, she was like, I am Marianne. Like, that is me. <laughs> and she is. I mean, she really, she's so perfect in that role. And I think Momo, who plays Claudia and Sochi... And I think Shay, I think that they had read them, but they they knew the graphic novels better than the book books. But they had all read them. They all had heard of them. Like there was nobody that came in like totally cold. Like I don't have any ideas about this or know anything about what it is. But they're definitely, I mean, the graphic novels have been super popular and Scholastic has done reprints and new editions of a lot of the classic like early books in the series as well. So like they're definitely still out there, you know. Though what's interesting is a lot of them are not reprinted. And if you want the complete set, you have to go to used book sites. Oh, I know. <laughs> An unorthodox super fan found out several years ago in the Facebook group, the Oppenheimers were looking for ones. And she sent us like 200 of them. I mean, she said, oh, yeah, my kids are, have outgrown them, like just have them. from, And that's where we got our collection, because otherwise it's shocking that they're not all still in print. Yeah, I hope that that will change, you know, now that I think that the show is creating some more appetite for like the later books. But I have I have a quite a lot. I mean, I'm sort of just have them scattered all over my house at this point here. I have just next to me. Here's Marianne's makeover. <laughs> They're just this is my decor now is just like vintage copies of Babysitter's Club books just scattered around so that I look intellectual. Decor by Anne Martin. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they are kind of hard to find and you wind up with a lot of doubles. But when we were sort of trying to like dig into them for like the material and reread them and the studio just went on like eBay and Etsy and bought up like everything they could find. <laughs> like, uh-huh. That's why. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but they don't even have them. Like I, I think Anne has most of them, Anne and Martin, but like there was some sort of like flood or something at the Scholastic Warehouse like years and years ago. So a lot of their like backstock was destroyed. Like they're, they're, it all has happened under kind of suspicious circumstances that these, <laughs> the scarcity of these books. So Rachel, before we let you go, I need to know like which character do you identify as? Like where is your sort of like your star chart? I really identify, I think, the most with Claudia. I always kind of did as a kid. I was very artistic. I was very kind of spacey. I wasn't I wasn't a very good student often. You hid candy in the closet. <laughs> a lot of candy hidden around my room. Yeah. But I like to draw and I like to like put on plays. And, you know, my family was much more sort of academic and straight laced than that. And I felt always like a little bit of like an odd duck a little bit like in, in my family environment, even though my parents are lovely, just as Claudia as ours. And I also think I identified with her because I was Jewish in this town where like a lot of people weren't. And even though she wasn't Jewish, but she was Japanese American and a place where like she was kind of the only one. And so it was like, you know, it was this very accepting environment, but there was just something about her that was like a little different. I think that I really identified with that early on. 
I was very close to my grandmother. But I also have a lot of like Christy in me too. Like I like to be in charge. I like to organize things. I like to be the one who tells other people what to do. That's why I like being the boss. I mean, I kind of, Lucia Aniello, who's was sort of my partner on this, and she's another executive producer. She directed a bunch of the episodes. She would always say as we would like pitch the meeting that like every woman that's in one of these rooms in Hollywood is a Christie. So it's like you're Christie and then what else are you? <laughs> <laughs> that is really funny because like I'm begrudgingly a Christie. Like I, I see her and I'm like, <laughs> oh, that is me at our meetings. Like I, I'm like that. I'm like, but I do want to be a Claudia. Like I strive to be a Claudia. There's, there's Claudia undertones. So I, I yeah. guess that's exactly your answer, <laughs> but reverse. Mark, what are you? Oh, gosh. You're a Miranda? I'm a Samantha. You're a Samantha. Uh, I'm a Blanche. I don't know. It, you know <laughs> it's, it may be telling that although I've read and enjoyed the books over the past few years as a dad, either I came to them too late or it's a male thing, but I don't see myself. I haven't thought, I haven't asked that question of it. I'll get back to you on that. Are you a boy babysitter? Are you Logan Bruno? Oh, I'm, lo- yeah, no, I mean, I. <laughs> or are you Marianne's dad? Well, babysitting your own children is not babysitting, as dads always point out. But I was a babysitter a lot as a kid. I was 14 years older than my youngest sibling. So I did a lot of babysitting. And oh, yeah. yeah, I'm a Logan. I'll take that. I'll take that. Sure. You know, I am. I'm an Am Martin. I just revere her. I mean, I'm not, but I just I aspire to be. That woman has written these books, but then hundreds of others. She's hundreds. she's prolific and brilliant. Yes. She's amazing. And still alive, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's about my mother's age. I mean, it's amazing how much she's changed the culture, just the impact she's had on America. It's unbelievable. And I think she's really kind of overwhelmed by it. You know, I think like a lot of people, you create these things for kids and you sort of it's kind of knocks you out to then like 35 years later, meet like these women who like know everything about your life's work (laughs) and have totally identified with it. And she actually said that part of what she thinks is special about this adaptation is that the books have been adapted before for television and there was the movie, Mm -hmm. but this is the first time they were adapted by women who grew up reading them. So Mm -hmm. there's like a different perspective on it. It's like we sort of really know what they meant. It's also great that like the Babysitter's Club readers are now like grown men and women who like can run things now. Like I feel like that makes for a better world. Yeah, it's been a long time. (laughs) Rachel Shukert, thank you so much for coming on Unorthodox. Our listeners who have not already binged The Babysitter's Club, it is on Netflix. And just do it right after you listen to this. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Rachel. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. 
And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me, in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Mailbox? Mailbox. All right, Stephanie, you want to read the first one? Dear Unorthodox, I'm a 23-year-old female living in Bedford, Virginia, and I've heard the voice of God. And he is telling me to buy Birdwell men's corduroy shorts, maybe even that mustard yellow. First, the Wall Street Journal had an article about them in the weekend edition, which sent me into a spiral. And then lo and behold, Mark tells us of his love for Birdwell shorts. Anyways, I started Unorthodox this past fall. You have helped me connect with my Jewishness and given me endless books to read, foods to try, and people to Google. Mark, fashion aside, you are always the glue that keeps the episode smooth. What excellent transitions, what disdain for luxury dogs, and what joy in mansplaining (laughs) while also seeking to understand and be informed. Stephanie, you hold your own and make me want to do the same to speak up and give my opinion. Also, Cat Stevens, man, what a misunderstood fellow. Liel, you make me want to make Aliyah to Israel, brush up on my college Greek, read Proust, and dig deeper into my spirituality. Please podcast forever and ever. Sincerely, forever listening, Elena. Geez, that was a nice note. That wasn't that nice. I mean, it is true that when I mansplain, it's called Marksplaining. But I still appreciate the sentiment. Sorry, are you Mark explaining back to a letter writer? I'm literally Mark explaining. Mark explaining the Mark explaining is a lot. No, that's a lovely it's, letter. It's meta explaining. That was my favorite letter of the week. Though I should say we got a couple great letters about the question of what you give your rabbi as a conversion gift, if that's even a thing. What is the push present for the rabbi who pushes you into Judaism? Here's a couple quickly. Dear Unorthodox, I myself got Hanukkah cards for two-thirds of my Beit Din, the rabbinic court that converted me. I got one for my conversion rabbi, as well as the rabbi who taught my class, who I consider my other conversion rabbi. I wrote a heartfelt message in each card that was specific to the rabbi. Wishing all the best, Arden. Well, that's a lovely idea. Just you know, I like that. Yeah, just some cards. And then this one. Dear unorthodox rabbis, have lots of gifts in Judaica. Go into their offices and homes. You'll see multitudes of trinkets. My suggestion to Kerrigan is a donation to the rabbi's discretionary fund. Lots of rabbis use these funds to give themselves books, take courses, or pay for things not covered by their salary. Mark would add here editorially that a lot of them also use it for chesed. They give it to members of the synagogue who are in need. It's a great way to support your rabbi and your rabbi's needs. Though I do like Liel's suggestion of Russ and Daughter's food. It's a great gift, and in these times, supporting restaurants and stimulating the economy is also wonderful. Julie Bernson Brook. Um, two voicemails, one strong, the other even stronger. Here's the first one. Uh, I just listened to episode 212 and wanted to give a hearty mazel to Mark for his conversation with anti-Zionist Carolyn Karsher. 
Sometimes I'm a little concerned Mark is too dismissive of the real intentions behind BDS and the anti-Zionist movement, but I was incredibly impressed by his thoughtful questions and really pushing against some of the claims she put forward. As always, I'm so grateful Unorthodox brings guests with such diverse opinions and viewpoints. Oh, and P.S., after seven months, I just rated Unorthodox on iTunes. Five stars. Well, thank you so much for those compliments. The Carolyn Karcher interview uh, was actually one of my favorites. K-A-R-C-H-E-R. It's in the archives at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox. Go have a listen. But here is the even stronger voicemail. I'm calling in with a suggestion for the Hebrew name for Consuelo. Um... The name Consuelo in Spanish kind of translates as consolation or relaxing in a way. So I thought a good Hebrew name would be Menucha, Menucha, which means in Hebrew, relaxing. So I thought that those two names might be well suited to each other. Manucha. Liel, do you approve? Is that a good good Hebrew women's name? I think it's a terrific name. I will say that a Jew by choice in Greater New Haven, who is of Latina ancestry, has a new daughter, Menucha. And that's where I've been hearing the name uh, around the coffee shops. And finally, longtime friend of the show, Gavriel Savitt-Woods, called in to chide Leah Leibowitz on something exceedingly relevant to these times and of biblical importance. Listen, guys, I understand that Liel is a provocateur and he likes to say things that are completely insane to get a reaction. But this time, he's gone too far. Schindler's List, potentially the most effective treatment of the Holocaust and the and like the popular culture canon, is profoundly goyish because it features a Christ-like character in the lead. But E.T., which is literally about a little brown dude who comes down from the heavens, heals people, dies in a sacrificial gesture, is resurrected, and then rises again into heaven, is Jewish. Give me a break. E.T. is Jewish. E.T. is precisely as Jewish as Jesus was. Well, I'm changing the name to Gabriel Savage Woods. (laughs) He kind of makes a good case, I gotta say. He kind of does. Eli is a writer and activist based in New York City. His first book is The New Queer Conscience, and we sat down to talk about how his gay and Jewish identities strengthen each other. I am so excited to be here with Adam Eli. He's a community organizer and the author of the newly published book, The New Queer Conscience, published in June by Penguin Random House as part of their Pocket Change Collective. Adam Eli, welcome to the show. Honestly, thank you so, so, so much. I am thrilled to be here. I always hoped that this day would come, and I'm just so grateful that it's arrived. Well, I'm so happy that you are happy and Mazel tov on your book. It's wonderful, and it must be so exciting to have your first book out. Thank you so much, and it really is cool. It really is exciting. I have, like, I'm, like, looking at, like, a whole little stack of them right here. That's amazing. So let's, we'll get to the book, but I want to talk about you first. I've had the privilege of knowing you for a few years and following along with your social media, particularly your Instagram, which has been really both entertaining and enlightening for me. So one image we often see on there, and if anyone's ever seen you at a march or a rally or really anywhere, is you wearing a pink yarmulke. Yes. 
That is like your signature trademark. And could you tell me a little bit about why you started wearing that and why in specifically queer contexts you wear that pink yarmulke? You're correct, I wear them in queer contexts, but I also wear them in political contexts. And I do it for two reasons. First of all, when I was younger, I was taught that a kippah was meant to show you that there's something above you, that there's something bigger than you at play. It's like a separation between you and your higher power or God. And so when I'm at a protest or at a political moment, it's good for me to remember that it's not about me and it's sort of like an act of recentering. That's one. Another part of the Kiba I was taught is that we're showing our Judaism to the world. And I have just seen so many people do really terrible things in the name of Judaism while wearing a kippa that I was eager to write that wrong on a personal level. So when I'm protesting or doing something political, I wear the kippa. Also, you wear the Jewish star necklace. The full look is Star of David necklace, pink kippa, and then pink eyeliner that matches the kippa perfectly. That is amazing. And you also do the the pink triangle patch on your denim jacket. Tell us a little bit about that. I have a massive pink triangle on the back of my jacket, and it says, never again is now, which is a direct call to my Jewish and queer history. The pink triangle, as we know, is from the concentration camps. It's what the Nazis, the symbol the Nazis assigned to queer people, like they signed the yellow star to Jews. Someone who was there because they were. Because they were sexually deviant, which usually meant gay. Their symbol to wear was the pink triangle. Exactly. And there were actually a bunch of different symbols. We know, of course, the most famous is the Jude, the yellow star. However, there was different ones for socialists and for communists and for political opponents, as well as Roma and Jehovah Witnesses, etc. So you seem to really, you know, visually, but also inherently, you have this cohesive sense of like a queer and Jewish identity. Was that always the case in your life? The book at least opens with that. It was not like that at all. I say with no irony that growing up, I truly felt like being queer and Jewish was my cross to bear. I felt like it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. And I I was taught that you can't, you know, once you're Jewish, you can't unconvert. In the eyes of Judaism, you're always Jewish. But I had like a little unconversion ceremony for myself in one of my first nights of college. And then as I grew into my queer identity, I grew into my Jewish identity too. And now what I'm determined to do is to use Judaism as a framework or as a tool to enrich the queer movement as I see it. Could you tell us a little bit about growing up? You were obviously raised in a Jewish household. Like, how Jewish are we talking? I know a lot of that is in the book, but give us sort of like a little bit of a taste of your upbringing and your family. My family are the best. We had a very, very left-leaning household. I went to Salman Schechter Day School and Camp Ramah. But then for high school, I went to Ramah's in the city, which is an Orthodox school. It sort of blended the beautiful worlds of like Upper East Side prep school and Orthodox Judaism. And the synagogue we went to as kids was also Orthodox. So there was a lot of left, but there was also a lot of right. You know, you write in the book that sort of your family, everyone sort of knew to protect you. They sort of gave you the toys you wanted. You were able to do whatever you wanted at home. But there was also this sense of like, but when people come over, we put away the Barbie dream house. The message was pretty clear, which is we love you and we love you as you are in your entirety. We're just not going to talk about it right now. This implication was sort of like, we're going to wait till you go to college or to speak about it. And something amazing that I've seen is, you know, like your mother alongside you at Pride, your brother's there with you. So clearly your whole family has embraced this part of your identity just the way sort of seems like they had to embrace you for you to embrace Judaism. I mean, how how much of that is connected? Well, my mother is, I think of her as a sadekis, someone else's words, not mine. She's an extraordinary, extraordinary woman and my role model and the biggest inspiration behind my activism. When I went to college, I, you know, had my 
unjewifying ceremony and refused to engage with Judaism in any capacity. I did not go to the Hillel. I did not celebrate holidays. When people asked me if I was Jewish, I would tell them I was Greek. So while that was happening, my mother totally independently felt like a wrong had been done. And so she started an organization called Mosaic of Westchester, which seeks to enrich the Jewish community with LGBT inclusion. And so once I came out, my family took the call to arms pretty quickly and pretty seriously. My little brother Evan hung a big pride flag in his frat house at Vanderbilt University. My little brother, who's a basketball coach, talks about pride and is a passionate, passionate advocate for trans inclusion in sports, which means so much to me. So yes, we're all in. So tell us a little bit about the new queer conscience. What is it and what inspired you to write a manifesto of sorts, you know, proclaiming it to the world? The new queer conscience is very, very, very simply the idea that queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere. I took the idea from the Talmud, Kol Yisrael, Avrim Zebazeh, meaning all of the people of Israel or all Jewish people are responsible for each other. And I just made it gay. Er, I just replaced the word Jewish with the word queer. And so growing up, I was always taught that I had an obligation to show up for all different types of Jewish people all over the world. And I found that to be really beautiful. I think it is one of the reasons why Jewish people have been able to have the success and survival that they've had. And it's an idea that I want to bring to the queer community. It's so interesting when you say that the first thing that pops up in my mind, and you're a little bit younger than I am, but was this like March for Soviet Jewry? We were always like raising money for Soviet Jewry. And I didn't really understand what Soviet Jewry was. But you're basically trying to say that actually like young queer groups should be doing the same thing for like a group in Chechnya, for example. That is exactly what I'm saying, Stephanie. You hit the nail on the head. I read the book. Yes. <laughs> so again, back to my mother, the biggest inspiration behind the book. My mother was involved in the Soviet Jewry movement and in many ways, both theoretical and frankly, practical. I borrow a lot from the Soviet Jewry movement when developing the idea for the nuclear conscience and also in its practical execution. So Absolutely. That's exactly what I mean. Use the word queer. Could you tell us why, you know, it's not the new gay conscience? Like, what role does the word queer, what does it mean to you and what, what power does it have in using it? This is a great question. It's a really important question. It's not a bad question to ask. I think it's a good question to ask. So much so that I open my book with an answer to that question. And the first thing is that the word queer means different things to different people. And that is okay. The word queer and its definition is ever evolving, and that's actually good because the more inclusive that it can be, the better. So I'm going to give you the Adam Eli as of July 2020 definition of queer, knowing that hopefully it'll be outdated soon with a more inclusive version. So the way I define it today is that queer inherently means different or other. If there are three blue chairs and one pink chair, the pink chair is queer. And so I think when it comes to gender, and sexuality, if you deviate from our society's norms in any way, I think of you as part of the queer family. Speaking of terminology, you use the acronym LGBTQIAA+, and you write that the most important part is the plus sign. For someone who's not as familiar with the full use of that acronym, could you sort of break it down, spell it out for us? Okay, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, LGBTQ, queer, I, intersex, A for ally, and asexual. So what is the purpose? I mean, that's a lot of letters. Why do you say them all? What, what's the purpose of the plus? What's the purpose of including allies there? Like, what are you signaling about inclusion when you use a phrase like that or when someone else uses a phrase like that? Sexuality and gender are nuanced. They're very, very, very nuanced. And so we are doing, we, I guess I'll speak for myself, I am doing the absolute best that I can to create an umbrella term for a community 
that people can be a part of if they so choose to be. And so the plus is the most important of all because perhaps how you are or how you identify or how you feel has not yet been verbalized to the world, but that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And I think about the intersex movement a lot because for so long, the intersex movement was left in the shadows of the LGBT community. And we're actively changing that. Today, I see myself as a staunch intersex ally and believe that ending non-consensual intersex surgery is super important. And I'm just terrified that there's another group of people out there in the literal or proverbial closet, and I don't know who they are and that they're suffering and they should be part of the queer community. And so that plus exists to say that this is not a closed comma. You know, we are eager and ready to embrace and help anyone and everyone. And there seems to be a real global emphasis on your work and in the book, this idea of the global queer conscience. And when you say queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere, I mean, could you give us some examples of some of the activism you've done to focus, you know, outside of New York City, outside of the United States, even some of the work you've done to, to sort of help communities abroad? Let's use the Soviet Jewry movement there because I think that's really important. And so the first thing is that I work with a lot of queer people that come from Russia and the former Soviet Union, and many of them come to the U.S. and they go right to Brighton Beach, which, if you've been to, literally looks as though you're in Russia. All the food is Russian. All the signs are in a different language. No one's speaking the same language. Same with the menus. It's it's wild, and it's, you know, like, off the end train. And so when I approached the group, I first said, you know, how can I be of service? And they said, we really need you to come to Brighton Beach Pride. And I said, okay, sure. Because what's happening in Brighton Beach is that because Russia has, you know, sort of replicated itself in this, like, tiny little community, something that Jews know how to do well, they've also unfortunately brought with them all the transphobia, queerphobia, and homophobia. So, like, they're not getting jobs. They're getting beaten up on the streets. The Russian doctors are refusing to prescribe them PrEP. It's really, really bad. So by going to Brighton Beach Pride, we all wore blue jeans and white shirts. We said two things. One, to the queer Russian refugees and asylum seekers that, you know, you're not alone we know what's happening here and it's not okay. You have allies in America and to the people that were mistreating them who are sitting on the sidewalk spitting at us, et cetera, that you can't behave this way. Like they, these folks are not alone. They have a huge, huge, huge force behind them. So that's one way that it works. When I say queer people anywhere are responsible for queer people everywhere, it works when the person's really close to you, but maybe far. And another way that I wanted to talk about is that I learned from my mother and from reading about it that in the Soviet Jewry movement, Sometimes you would like adopt a refusenik. And so like a middle school class or like a synagogue or whatever would like adopt a prisoner. And it was like your job to like send that prisoner letters and like raise money for them and like go down to the radio station and like say their name or whatever. And so I thought like, okay, I can do that. And so there was um, there was a journalist who was from Uzbekistan, but was in Russia and was being deported to Uzbekistan, where he, Amnesty International, stepped in and said he will absolutely be killed if he goes back there because he's queer. And so we adopted him. And we just, we like got a bunch of artists online to make images of him. We projected those images on the consulate. We put them on flyers. He snuck out a page of his diary and we auctioned that off at a drag bar and raised money. We just like didn't shut up about him until eventually. And we were, of course, one of many groups in different pockets of the world doing that. We were just like the New York version of that. And he was given asylum in Berlin. So in a theoretical, but also a very literal sense, the best part about being a queer activist and the best part about being a Jewish activist is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. All the history is right there. So something we've been hearing about more and more is like this idea of 
Jews in progressive spaces sort of playing down their Jewishness because they, you know, Israel is going to come up. Like there's sort of things like that. And we hear about one-off things. I mean, is that something that you've encountered? I mean, you are so publicly Jewish, right? That's so much a part of of your activism. Have you ever sort of gotten pushback from that? And how do you feel about sort of like the, the talk about that? So I'm going to sort of answer your question. And I'm going to say something that really does upset me is right now at the forefront of my mind and everyone's mind, I think, should be all the Jewish people's mind, is the Black Lives Matter movement. And within the scope of my pretty successful but also actively flawed Jewish education, I was taught constantly and constantly that Jewish people and Black people have a special relationship because Jews supported the civil rights movement and Abraham Heschel marched with Martin Luther King. I was just taught that all the time. And like, obviously that was true and that happened and that's wonderful. But now what? Because that was in the 60s. And there's like so much space and Jews in many places, but not all, have attained so much privilege that I feel like that story has yet to be written. You're speaking to a largely Jewish audience. You might be speaking to people who, someone listening to this might be in a situation similar to yours when you were growing up. This book seems to be written for the younger version of you, sort of the book you wish you had. Do you have any advice, I mean, both to children and to parents who are, you know, within the Jewish community? I mean, you seem to really, really be through experience and through your education, like sort of this font of knowledge and, and awareness in this field. What would you say to sort of Jewish families now who might have a family member who is queer or is sort of questioning in some way? I mean, what, what would you say to them? The book is, on the back it says 12 to 18. I think that the book is meant for 12 through like college or maybe even like 30. And then also the parents of, or family members of any of those folks. And so first I'll address the kids and I'll say that you can be queer and Jewish without having to compromise on either of those identities. And the minute that you leave your parents' house or the minute you're financially able to is that you never need to go into a space that doesn't fully embrace both of those identities ever again. You don't owe anything to that because I left and created my own Jewish community, my own queer space, and it's incredible. And then there are so many amazing queer Jewish people that are so ready to hang out with you and love you and march with you and introduce you to future partners and like give you books and do your makeup that the idea of having to compromise on being queer Jewish in a Jewish space is just over. You don't have to do that anymore if you don't want to. And I want to say to the parents, first of all, hi. Second of all, I would imagine that this is really tough. And I know that a lot of parental issues come from, you know, loving your kids so much and wanting them to have the best and in some ways easiest life possible. And I think that that love is so important, but you have to fuel it towards acceptance because this is how it is. People do not pretend to be queer. Being queer is difficult enough already. And if you want to keep your child close to you and to the Jewish people, radical acceptance is your best and really only route. Adam, Eli, it is such a treat to talk to you. I felt just so so moved by by what you're doing and, and the fact that you have been able to make this identity one that is completely your own. Where can we follow along? Where should we be getting the book? What should, what should we be doing? Thank you. That is so sweet. But first, I want to give a quick shout out to your newish Jewish encyclopedia, because there is one line in there that speaks to me so deeply, <laughs> where it says on the Barbara Streisand page, it asserts first that if you don't know who this is, you're probably reading the wrong book. And secondly, that she is the most important woman in all of Jewish history, including the Bible. <laughs> and I just, I just love that. You know, it's funny. I do love that line. Part of me wishes that we had actually, like, given more of an explanation for who she was because our whole thing was like, 
anything you want to know, it's in there. And the one thing we don't explain is who Barbara Streisand is, because we just assume that's a given. But I kind of like, because what I love about the encyclopedia is that it speaks to, I'm always looking for places where I can be queer and Jewish without having to compromise. And I think that being a Barbara Streisand fan is one of those. And so is this book. So I sort of think it spoke to your audience in a really nice way. And so you can follow me on Twitter at A.E. Werner, or you can follow me on Instagram, which is where I do most of my talking, and it's just Adam Eli. And if you're able to get to a bookstore, you can get the New Queer Conscience. should absolutely be there. It's also online. The link is in my Instagram bio. And also, I'm going to give Unorthodox a link where the book is 30% off. So you can click that too. Amazing. Thank you, Adam Eli. This is such a treat. This is so great. I'm so glad that we made this happen. Mazel tovs. I would like to turn my mazel tov over to this lovely voicemail that we got at the listener line. Hi, J. Crew. Monica Sass here calling to wish a huge mazel tov to my brother and sister-in-law, Ben Sass and Aliza Jaffe Sass, on the birth of their extremely cute son, Leo Uriel. Ben and Aliza are longtime listeners to Unorthodox and are excited to share it with their son every week. And Mazel Tov to Leo himself on his news debut in a front page Wall Street Journal article about Brisses during the pandemic. So a big Mazel Tov to Ben and Eliza and their son and wishing them much health and success and happiness. May your son be raised to learning, good deeds, chupa. and chupa. And, and fam- I like the idea of hope family as chupa. It's where it all begins, baby. That's right. Uh, I would also like to turn my Mazel Tov to this wonderful voice memo and say mazel tov to the newest member of the family. Hey Unorthodox, it's Kerrigan Kelly. I wrote you an email about a month ago looking for some help picking a Hebrew name and I wanted to give you a bit of an update. I ended up choosing the name Avigail and Avigail is, it means my father's joy and Avigail was also one of King David's wives and she was known for being resourceful and loyal and intelligent and just an all around badass woman. And I thought, you know, this is a great name and uh, she is someone that I should be aspiring to be. So it's official. I am a Jew. I am Abigail. And I wanted to thank the three of you for your suggestions. And I also wanted to thank the community at large for their interest and their suggestions. Kerrigan, we are so excited for you. And we hope we have been just a little bit helpful along your journey, giving you ridiculous answers to all of your questions. And don't think we're done with you. You have to stay in touch. Every every new thing you do, your first fasting for Tishabov. Your first meeting with Nick Cannon. <laughs> yeah, Abigail. You're actually, Abigail, we'll send you. You don't mind, do you? Are you busy? She had no idea what she'd signed up for. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov to my little, little, little Consuelo Hernandez. She took the plunge. She did a Zoom bait din. And she is officially one of us. Her conversion rabbi was Rabbi Joshua Stanton. And Shira Ginsburg, the cantor at East End Temple, who officiated my wedding, was there at her bait din. And that makes it so, so, so special. And I will tell you, after months of speculation... I have the name. Oh. She went with the beautiful name Bar. Love it. Mazel Tov Consuelo, Bar. I love you so much and I'm Raising so excited for you. The bar. Yeah. <laughs> for the Jews. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter, bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. If you want to advertise with us, email producer Josh Cross. That's jcross with a K at tabletmag.com. 
Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is the bearded Robert Skirmuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman. Until Esther Werdiger returns, our theme music is by Golem forever. They're online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and rabbinic supervision this week by Springfield, Illinois' own Rabbi Barry Marks. We come to you again from the scattered basement subterranean nuclear fallout shelter hovels of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. Cat, shut the fuck up.